according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, once again in Proverbs 16. We're looking at verses 10 through 15 at the moment. Kind of the middle section here, or one of the early to middle sections of this chapter. Proverbs 16, 10 through 15. Verses 10 through 15 spotlights kings. It's a spotlight for kings with a discourse on the ideal king. And of course, we know who the ideal king is. And when we understand Jesus and uh, what we have to look forward to in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, you could even view this uh, section of Proverbs prophetically, although strictly it's not an actual prophecy per se, but as it is a presentation of kings and the ideal king in particular, then obviously it is a picture of Jesus and we can understand that for what it is. A divine decision is on the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. And uh, that's where we spent the bulk of our time a week ago and we'll uh, try to wrap that up here today and then move on to the economics of it in verse 11. A just balance and scales. And then... um, The king's personal behavior in verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. And what kind of politicians do we want to have in office? And uh, what kind of politicians do we have in office? And uh, if we're looking for perfect government before the Lord returns, well, we can keep looking. It's not going to happen until the Lord returns. But a more perfect union, I think is how the founding fathers put it, and this is what we strive for in in our voting choices. So anyway... Here's where we are. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, though. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a time to quiet our hearts and ask for his blessing on our truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your truth, the blessings of truth that you've revealed to us. We have the scriptures, Father, that have been provided, and we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, believers today in our dispensation have no excuse. Uh, Father, all these things have been laid out. I thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. We come before you in humility. We present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed. And, Father, calling upon your faithfulness to rightly divide the word of truth, open our eyes and teach us this morning. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so really, um, we have this issue here that sparks a lot of things that have sparked a lot of trouble through the years, even with respect to the divine right of kings and other abuses, whereby uh, political figures, kings, and national leaders, for example, view themselves as as mini gods, if you will, and uh, that's simply an abuse. It's a it's a twisting of the scripture, but there is a basis of reality within it that we don't want to lose track of. All right. Kings are considered public servants of God. And so when it says an oracle is in the lips of the king, that's what it means. A a divine decision is on the lips of the king. When he utters, when he is issuing a a finding, that we should accept that as being the will of God, because God's the one who put him there. And what he has decreed for a national policy, what he has decreed for... um, any decision, as it says here, an oracle, if you will, uh, we accept that this is the will of God. This is the direction our nation is going. And we may not like it. We may not be happy with it. 
we may view, in fact, that it is, um, it's wrong, it's bad, but it still comes from God. And so it may be that this is what God's doing to wake up his, his people, to get believers uh, hungry for doctrine, to, get, uh, to discipline a land to the point that they come to a, a stage of repentance and aspects there. We want to understand it. So uh, a divine decision is on the lips of a king. That's, that's the, the flat-out statement. His mouth should not err in judgment. So he needs to have a fear of the Lord whereby he is speaking in the will of God uh, as far as that goes. All right. Kings are public servants of God. Their decrees should be considered as God's decrees. This is why as representatives of God, they have to uh, be fearful lest they abuse their position and find themselves removed. That's the aspect there in Psalm 82. But then we have our New Testament passages that make it very clear uh, in ways that sometimes uh, we don't get comfortable with. But Romans 13 says to be in subjection to the governing authorities that are over you. Likewise, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Likewise, uh, I didn't put it on the screen, but Titus, there's a passage in Titus that says the same thing that Romans 13 says and 1 Peter 2 says. So real quickly, let's just refresh our thinking on this from Romans 13. And uh, in case uh, you weren't here last week, when we or two weeks ago, it was two weeks ago when we were dealing with this, that's right. Because last week uh, I was in Dallas and attended the pre-trib conference in Dallas, so... It was two weeks ago that we read Romans 13 and uh, where it says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And this is one where uh, a lot of folks want to edit the Bible. They want to make it say what it doesn't say. They want to put a little helping word in there that helps God out a little bit uh, or helps themselves out a little bit. They want to rewrite the verse that says to obey the governing authorities that are ruling well to obey the righteous governing authorities, to obey the, the authorities that are in God's plan. And, and really what they do is they go down to some of the explanation that comes in verses 3 and 4, uh, where rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil. And there's occasions where that gets flipped upside down. There are occasions when you have unrighteous government and they are not serving the ideal, the purpose of God. And uh, likewise, it is a minister of God to you for good. If you want to do, but if you do evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Again, just like with Proverbs 16, presenting the ideal, Romans 13 is presenting the ideal. It's presenting the design. What happens when uh, uh, when uh, reality does not meet the ideal? What happens when uh, we have a king that's not functioning in in a biblical manner? Does that give us license? So if we, if we look ahead to verses 3 and 4 and say, well, they're not walking right, I can ignore verse 1. Is that valid? The quick answer is no, that's not valid. That the explanation that follows does not mitigate the imperative that begins the, uh, the entire passage. We'll deal with the yeah but here in a moment. So every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. The adjective that's there is governing it's not the righteous authorities, the ones we agree with, the ones we voted for, uh, the ones that are walking right. It's the ones that are governing. If they exist, if they are in power, then you are subject to that power. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So does it exist? You may not like it, but if it exists, that's what it is. 
And uh, it seems like every time we have a change of administration, there's some believers that are thrilled, and then there's others that, you know, wish it didn't go that way, you know. And, and you got Republican believers and Democrat believers, and, and, and uh, half of them aren't happy in any given administration <laughs> when it comes to who's president and what's going on. Well, the ones that exist, the ones that are in power, are there because God put them there, and we cannot deny that. So, if you resist authority... You are opposing the ordinance of God, the whole design and the laws of divine establishment, marriage, family, nations. And uh, we don't want to be in opposition to God's plan. So we have that. Now, of course, there's the what ifs. What if they're not righteous? We talk about that. Rebellious and wicked kings are God's business, not ours. Rebellious and wicked kings are God's business, not ours. And when it comes time to remove them, God will do so in his timing when his purpose for putting them there in the first place is complete. He didn't put them there for no reason. It's kind of like, you know, you get a, a health test and, and the first thing you will ask is, take it away. Well, wait a minute. Um, you know, God doesn't just give us something so he can remove it instantaneously the minute we become aware of it. It's there for a reason, for a season, for a time, for a duration, whatever that duration happens to be. And so the same thing with wicked, with wicked rulers. And yes, the righteous groans. The righteous groans when the wicked uh, increase. And yet God permits it, God directs it. And we want to understand that David would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He knew that Saul was going to be replaced. He knew that he was the next king after Saul. But he was not going to presume upon God and take it upon himself to accelerate that timetable. He left it in God's hands to take Saul off the throne and put him on the throne. And he had been anointed years prior. He still left it in the hands of God. And I think that's a marvelous pattern for us. And you'll see that in 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 24. Uh, Likewise in Daniel, he installs kings, he removes kings. He installs the basest of men, it says. Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson. And uh, I find those verses are, are key. So that's God's business, not ours. In particular, God will assign wicked kings and or wicked laws to implement His policy of judgment. His policy of judgment. And so if there is a people group that God has determined requires national judgment, then very likely He's going to give them a wicked king, wicked laws, wicked circumstances in which that nation will experience national judgment. And the rain will fall on the just and the unjust. Uh, we don't get a, a pass, a free pass from national consequences simply because we're saved. We, we deal with the economy and the, and the political situation like all the unbelievers do. And so that needs to be clear as well. Now we ran out of time before I could get through all of these. I want to make sure we're, we're solid on these. So let's look at 1 Kings 19. Plus it's been a couple of weeks and, and we've slept since then so we might have not remembered what we were looking at here. 1 Kings 19. Because to me, the whole concept of rejecting what God is doing is just a defiance. And it's an immaturity. Uh, Particularly, what if He's assigned you this test? Maybe this health test is a a long-term blessing. Maybe this health test is designed, it's going to bear fruit in you, and your family, and a whole batch of people watching what you're doing and, and there's so much eternal glory that's going to happen because of that uh, and, and we're going to disagree with God and say no we'd rather not go through this uh, no thanks I'll decline this task what is that? See that's, uh, that's just defiance against the will of God Alright so in 1 Kings 15, uh, 19 
uh, verse 15 here. Do I want to read? Yeah, no, this is, uh, this is the chapter here where Elijah is uh, uh, afraid of a woman. <laughs> you know, he just went head to head with 200 prophets of Baal and had no issues there and a great shining victory. Be, be, be aware of that. If you have a great victory, look out. Tomorrow can be a horrible defeat. I think pride, pride engineers that. But, and then he's hiding in a cave and then he hears the still small voice after his pity party when he thinks he's, he's the only one still serving the Lord. Well, then what happens is in verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. You shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. So God's got a long-term plan. A long-term plan for Israel that's going to involve the Arameans. And a long-term plan that's going to involve the appointing of a king. And it doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen right away at all. In fact, it's ages before it finally does happen. And, and uh, then there's a transition between, uh, between Elijah and Elisha as time goes by. And uh, so there's step one. You shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. By the way, Jehu is a valid Scrabble play if you ever want to use it. Um, <laughs> you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son, uh, uh, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And so these are the consequences. This is like his last duty assignment before he's removed. He's, he's effectively, he's losing his prophetic office because of this pity party and the running away and, and all this, this whole episode. So his final duties are to go and anoint these kings, anoint his successor, and then the chariot will, uh, will take him out of here. All right. And it goes on, it shall come about, this is verse 17 now, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Those, uh, yeah, those prophets, weren't, they, they didn't mess around. They, they were... They were instruments of God's judgment. All right. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so you talk about a rebuke for Elijah and his pity party when he was saying, you know, I alone am left. You know, boo-hoo, woe is me. I've been so good and I'm the last one. And uh, just uh, upset about how, how uh, God had been treating him. All right, so now we can turn over to Second Kings. Do I want to read the rest of that? As far as this chapter goes, uh, we, see, we see Elisha here introduced. He departed from there, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and uh, he with the twelfth. And Elisha passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. And uh, he left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Anyway, this goes well with uh, Jesus talks about putting your hand to the plow and then looking back. Okay, now over to 2 Kings chapter 8. And we'll pick up the paragraph here in verse 7. Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick. And it was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. And, and there's only a, a handful of places in the Old Testament where we have little clues. You know, Jonah went to Nineveh, and there's, there's little clues about what happens when a, when a Jewish prophet arrives in a Gentile capital city. Okay? 
And here's, uh, here's one of the, the little glimmers we have. The man of God has come here. So the king said to Hazael, remember that name, Hazael? We just read it back in 1 Kings. Remember what he's supposed to be? The next king. So the king said to Hazael, take a gift in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, will I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing of Damascus, 40 camels loads, and he came and stood before him and said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, will I recover from this sickness? Then Elijah, Eli, I'm sorry, Elisha said to him, go, say to him, now this is curious to me because this is a lie but it's under divine command go say to him you will surely recover but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die so Elisha is is instructing this uh, agent to be deceptive to uh, and he's telling him the truth of what the Lord's revelation is and then advising him in a in the manner of the of the uh, <laughs> of the tra- transition of power here. So he fixed his eye, his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. And this is in the will of God. God has appointed Hazael and he has appointed Jehu and he has appointed Elisha. And Elisha doesn't like it. <laughs> Not one bit. I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with a sword. Their little ones you will dash in pieces. And their women with child you will rip up. And Elisha has the faith to be obedient and do what needs to be done. And keep in mind, remember, whoever survives Hazael, Jehu's going to kill. And whoever survives Jehu, Elisha has to deal with it. Okay? So Hazael said, but what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. And so he departed from Elisha, returned to his master who was waiting to hear that news and said to him, well, what did Elisha say to you? He said, no. He said, he answered, he told me that you will surely recover. And on the following day, he took the cover and dipped it in water, spread it on his face so that he died. And Hazael became king in his place. And there you have it. All right. Sorry for the depressing class this morning. <laughs> okay. But this is what it is. And uh, it's, a, it's a fallen world and, and there's a lot of darkness and national darkness gets dealt with. God's in control. And he deals with, with these nations in these ways. And so if he gives us uh, a wicked king, or we would say today a wicked president, you know, a wicked uh, uh, speaker of the house, a wicked uh, senate, a wicked governor, whatever political level that uh, that we have, is there any political level that we have that God's not in control of? Is there anything that's beyond His reach? He controls everything. I figure if He counts the hairs on your head, He's got He's got uh, He's concerned about the particular details of everything, and that's uh, that's what we deal with. All right. There's also wicked laws that He permits, and all of this is to implement His policy of judgment. Ezekiel chapter twenty. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, chapter 20. Turn 
24 through 26 is what I put on the slide, but of course there's a context that precedes that. But um, how much of this do I want to read this morning? Let's see. It's, it's curious how he does deal with them on a generational basis. Uh, he talks about fathers and their children and then their children and the accountability that comes on a generational basis. Just because your fathers were, were evil doesn't mean you have to be. You can make better choices and you can repent. And, uh, and also just because you feared God doesn't mean your children automatically will. They can make terrible choices and they can turn evil. So let's, uh, let's uh, walk in God's grace generation by generation and, and uh, pray, pray for our kids and our grandkids. So um, just picking up here, uh, verse 18, I said to their children... And who are they? Well, let's see. Back up. Anyway, Israel's under judgment. And, and Ezekiel bears this out because he's in captivity himself. He's in one of the, the, the second batch that ever got hauled away to Babylon. Uh, he was in that second batch. And so um, a generation gets judged and then the children get warned. So verse 18, I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers or keep their ordinances or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and observe them. Sanctify my Sabbaths and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And so you have the Exodus generation and then you have their children, the wilderness generation, and each generation should learn from what preceded them, especially if it was judgment, if God dealt with them in, uh, in judgment. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbaths. So I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. And so we have this. Then verse 22, but I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Israel received a lot of grace because uh, God had made unconditional covenants towards uh, Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and that he uh, upholds his own name and his own righteousness in the sight of the nations. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands. It's even written in Deuteronomy that they would have such global dispersion if they were defiant to his to his law. Because they had not observed my ordinances, but had rejected my statutes, and had profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. I also gave them statutes that were not good. Now why would he do that? I gave them statutes that were not good, and ordinances by which they could not live. And it's curious to me, when God in permissive will gives a nation over, and when we find that we, like we do in America, we have a nation that used to have laws grounded in biblical principles, and we're finding more and more of those are being rewritten, and more and more of those are being adjusted, and more and more things are being redefined. Marriage doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore. Things like that, for example. And uh, verses like this pop into my mind, and I think, hmm, laws that are not good, ordinances that are not good. The city of Austin just decreed uh, about a month ago, I guess, that uh, we're in trouble. Austin Bible Church, any church in town now, we can't discriminate in our hiring practices against uh, transsexuals. Uh, we can't discriminate against uh, transgenders or any other thing. And if we do, uh, you know, we're going to get sued. The city itself will sue us and they're going to enforce their non-discrimination policy and there's nothing to exempt churches from their 
definition of things that we have to abide by. And so, uh, okay, <laughs> I guess we'll find out what happens then. See, so fortunately, I don't believe we have any hiring coming up anytime soon. But as far as that goes, um, what are we going to do? See, so there's pastors in Houston and other lawyers are getting together. There, there's an effort, and you might pray for that to uh, to try to get this statute overturned and and uh, protect churches to to live according to what the Word of God says. All right. I gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts in that they caused all of their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate in order they might know that I am the Lord. You know, the firstborn was supposed to be sanctified to Yahweh, be redeemed with a sacrifice. Instead, they're worshiping Molech and they're sacrificing their firstborn and uh, infanticide as they murdered their children in uh, the pagan fashion. So, we find ourselves in these places. And so imagine being in a nation with a national policy of infanticide with all these wicked laws, with wicked kings that instead of blessing righteousness and and punishing wrongdoing, they flipped it upside down. The wicked are being rewarded and the righteous are being oppressed. That's terrible. We remain in subjection, see, and that's the point. And so we can pray for God to overthrow it in His timing. We can nevertheless pray for the life of the king. Pray that he gets saved. Pray for a revival. Pray for, an, uh, if not, pray for our testimony if, should we be imprisoned and executed and whatever else might happen. At least there will be a witness to the truth if our nation is destroyed in, in the process. And, and last thing I'll say on this, subjection is not a synonym for obedience. Okay? Subjection is not a synonym for obedience. And, and the best illustration of that is Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were warned not to preach Christ and um, they said they had to obey God rather than man. And so you get to a point here is this the passage I'm thinking of? See, I get in trouble sometimes when I go off the top of my head. Yeah, no, here it is. It's in, it's in 529. Also 419. 529. So in chapter 4 is when they had the threat. You know, quit preaching Christ. Warned them to quit speaking in this name. And they had the same answer in 419 that they give again in 5. Uh, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And then they threaten them further and they let them go. So that was the that was the command in chapter 4. In chapter 5, it's the follow-up. We told you to quit preaching Christ. <laughs> and they said, well, so um, they bring them before the high priest in verse 27. In chapter 5 now, verse 27. Stood them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Like the last time I was in the city council, they said, you, I was invited to give the prayer to open up the council meeting, and they said, make sure it's a non-sectarian prayer. They were very insistent, non-sectarian. You know what that means? Don't say Jesus. Yeah, and so what do I do? Dear Heavenly Father, <laughs> and I gave my whole prayer in the filling of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died on the cross for our sins. Amen. I've not been invited back. <laughs> 
But see, what do you do? They give you strict orders. Are you going to obey that or what are you going to do? Now, so subjection, and they stayed in subjection even while they disobeyed. That's the point. Even in the process of disobeying, you can still be in subjection, but you're, you're accepting the consequences of that disobedience. That means jail or execution or whatever Caesar decides to do. Subjection is not blind obedience. Okay? And we want to be clear on that. So, same thing. They gave strict orders, and we, you know, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, "We must obey God rather than men." And then he goes from there. So this is what uh, we may come to if, in fact, God gives us wicked government, and uh, we continue to pray, we continue to stay in subjection. And uh, we leave it in God's hands. When He wants to change things, when He wants to put righteousness back on the throne, He's certainly free to do that. And uh, we pray that, that He will. All right, so that's verse 10. Moving on to the economics of things here. National economic policy should reflect the justice of God. National economic policy. We want to have just weights and measures, uh, just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. National economic policy should reflect the justice of God. Now we've had similar verses to this previously. In fact, it came up in chapter 11 where it was really more involved in terms of your personal life, your business dealings. Uh, This is a context, I think the whole section here from 10 to 15 centers on kings, centers on governance. Uh, And so that's why on the point I labeled it as national economic policy. But really, in what, in what realm of life is it okay to cheat? In what realm of life uh, can you conduct fraud? Uh, because that's what it is. Uh, either economic fraud or um, some other kind of financial fraud. You devalue your currency or you have a, 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 an inflationary policy whereby you can uh, help to escape through some of your debt that way. Um, there's other ways that people monkey with their economic policy that are not pleasing in the sight of God that come down to this issue here about a just balance and scales. So if, you, uh, if you're cheating on your business dealings, if you've got the real weight, so you put them on the scales and this is your, this is your one pound weight and you can weigh out the silver or the gold or the ephah of flour, whatever you're doing. But then you have a phony, you put the real one away and you bring out the phony one that's slightly heavier than it should be and it's still labeled uh, you know, what it is, so then you can cheat. And then you can skim the profits and, and make more than you should be making. The weights of the bag are his concern. He knows about the phony ones, right? He knows that you've got the real dice and the fake dice, the loaded dice, whatever. I mean, humans have been cheating ever since there's been sin. <laughs> and that's, that's the way of it. But the God of truth, that, that does not portray his righteousness, does not portray his justice. God is the God of absolute fairness. And so on a, on a matter of policy, to be fundamentally unfair is an attack on the image of God. That's what it comes down to. And so we have these other references here also from chapter 11 and verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Remember abomination? It's more than just homosexuality. It's more than just some of these other sins. It's, it's something that just stinks so badly he pushes, he pushes it away from him. Abomination is the language of pushing away. Whereas if it's his delight, he wants to draw it near. He wants to embrace it. He wants to, to hug it as, it will, as you will. Okay? 
So a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. You push it away. You want it as far away as your arms can reach. You want it out of reach. You want it out of, uh, out of your periphery. But a just weight is his delight. He loves the fairness. He loves the equality. He loves the, he loves the, uh, the uh, that's what justice is all about. You have a standard, you, you administer justice on the basis of that standard of righteousness. That's what it's about. Because if you pervert justice, how do you demonstrate grace? <laughs> how do you demonstrate uh, justice? How do you demonstrate mercy? See, the, the blessings of God is giving us what we don't deserve. The blessings of God and grace is saving us, in fact, despite the fact we deserve the lake of fire. And that's not an injustice, but that's God who, who meets the standard of justice in Christ and then bestows His blessings upon us in grace. Does that make sense? And so grace, in order to have real grace, you've got to have real justice so that grace can be the contrast, so that justice can be satisfied. It's not a perversion of justice for Christ to take our, uh, our wrath on the cross. It's not a perversion of justice for God to forgive our sins and to provide for us eternal life. Because absolute righteousness and justice was satisfied at Calvary. So, you want to cheat God? You want to cheat with a false balance? You want to portray a picture of, of injustice? That's, uh, that's frightening ground right there. He calls it an abomination, I think. Because really it, it undermines the whole point of the grace of God in saving us. Why did God bother satisfying His own righteousness and His own justice? Why would God exercise perfect justice on Jesus Christ if it's okay to go ahead and, and, uh, and cheat the, the scales, if you will? Uh, chapter 20. We're going to have this coming back up again. Verse 10 and verse 23. Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. Verse 23, differing weights, differing uh, are an abomination to the Lord. A false scale is not good. So every time I fill up with gas, I make sure that little seal is there from the Texas uh, uh, Department of, of uh, what is it called? Yeah, Agriculture Department. They, they measures all the scales and they put the seals on the, on the uh, gas tanks. Because I want to make sure if I'm paying for 10 gallons in my tank, I want to make sure I get 10 gallons in my tank. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to pay for 10 gallons and get 9 gallons because they they got this, uh, you know, this cheating thing going on. Leviticus 19. It's a part of law. It's, it's written into Mosaic law. Matter of national economic policy. Leviticus 19. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's not accidental. The whole aspect of justice is key to who God is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. If you attack justice and righteousness, you're attacking God. That's why it's an abomination. Deuteronomy 12, 13 through 15. I get upset when my favorite restaurant starts to cut down the portion sizes. And I say, wait a minute. I'm still paying what I was paying a month ago, but you're kind of cheating me on the chicken here. What are you doing? And, uh, you know, I want just weights. 
If I'm paying for four, I want four. I don't want three. All right. Deuteronomy 12, 13 through 15. Be careful that you do not... Is that it? That's not it? All right. I will... uh, I will mark a note and fix that for next week. Crazy, crazy. Sometimes it's simple as just a digit off, but I'm not seeing it here. Doesn't matter. You got the point. I figure if I give you six verses to prove it, and if only five of them are accurate, then... Uh, that's just a typo on my part, I'm sure. We'll, uh, we'll get it fixed before next week. All right. Economic policy. Political figures. Point C, move on to verse 12. Political figures, public life and private life, should reflect the righteousness of God. Political figures, public life and private life, should reflect the righteousness of God. We don't, we don't differentiate. We don't have a schizophrenic situation where you know, like with President Clinton, that well, okay, his personal life is personal. It doesn't affect how he how he serves in office and whatever, whatever. Character is character. In office, out of office, uh, on duty, off duty, uh, aspects like that. You know, if your pastor had some kind of a horrible sin problem, but he said, "Hey, it, but I never brought it into the pulpit," <laughs> you wouldn't let that fly. You'd stop and say, "Well, wait a minute." You know, it's because it speaks to your character. It speaks to who you are. It speaks to the righteousness of God. And here in verses 12 and 13, let me get back to Proverbs 16 here. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. You know, now everybody's a sinner. We get that. But to flagrantly display yourself in wickedness when you're supposed to be a representative of God, you're God's servant, you're God's steward on that throne, and you're going to you're going to act as an abomination. God won't tolerate that. For the throne is established on righteousness. You know, there's a reason why when they assumed office, they were supposed to write out for themselves a copy of the law. Imagine doing that. Just saying, okay, here's the Torah. Write your own copy. Get your own pen, your own paper. Write it out. And you got your own personal Bible for the rest of your reign on that throne. And you wrote it out for yourself. Because your throne is grounded in righteousness. Verse 13, righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. And so this component of righteousness, your private life, your your, uh, public life, should all reflect the righteousness of God. That's what we're called to, that's what political leaders are called to do. And we don't always get it, of course, as we've been studying. God will give us unrighteous judgment for uh, for judgment, but um, ultimately Jesus Christ is is the, the portrait here. The reign of Jesus Christ will be the ultimate expression of this truth. Other passages in Proverbs address this as well, such as Proverbs 20. We were just there in Proverbs 20. Verse 28. Loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. And we expect this. We expect righteous rulers. We expect uh, honesty. We expect if you break a campaign promise, the voters aren't going to like that. You know, when when President Bush said, "Read my lips, no new taxes," and then he raised taxes. 
a lot of folks didn't like that and he didn't get reelected. I think that was a big part of it related to that. Loyalty and truth preserve the king, but he, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. Chapter 25 and verse 5. When we get into chapter 25, we're in the next segment of Proverbs. Really, it's a, it's a segment that wasn't even written. I mean, Solomon wrote these, but they weren't canonized until the days of Hezekiah. The, this collection got added to the canon uh, you know, 200 years after Solomon. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. And it was a a blessing for them, and the Holy Spirit added it to the canon. And you see that it centers on kings here. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As the heavens uh, for the height and the earth earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. And I like that tandem. I like that tandem of verse 4 and verse 5. Take away the dross from the silver, but take away the wicked from before the king. You know, an advisor that uh, doesn't need to be there. Get rid of them. Surround yourself with righteous advisors and counselors and, and assistants and so forth. Get rid of the wicked and, uh, and your administration will, uh, will be improved. His throne will be established in righteousness. Jesus is going to do this day by day in the millennial kingdom. Chapter 29, Proverbs 29 and verse 14. 25 through 29. This is that segment of the Hezekiah. Some even call it the book of Hezekiah, you know which is hilarious because you try to trick people into turning to the book of Hezekiah and they're flipping through all the prophets trying to find there's no book of Hezekiah anywhere from you know Isaiah to Malachi. But technically, if you want to be technical about it, this has been labeled the book of Hezekiah by you know, Jewish traditions. It's the, it's the segment of Proverbs that uh, the men of Hezekiah added to the canon. Really, we call it Proverbs 25 through 29. And in 29.14... If a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. There's, there's certain blessings whereby God grants an extension. I think it's like when children obey their parents in the Lord, and uh, there's an extension. He, they, they may live long in the land. There's a grace extension to lifespans. There's a grace extension to political reigns. If in fact there is a king that's a servant in God's hands, um, as it says here, there can be an extension the reign of Jesus Christ will be the ultimate expression of this truth. And uh, Psalm 45 is the, is the enthronement psalm on this. It talks about uh, the king. It talks about his bride. I like Psalm 45 for a lot of reasons. It's interesting too because um, the, uh, the, the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. No Jewish believer, nobody with an Old Testament theology had any clue about the bride of Christ, had any clue about the church age or, or what would happen after, you know, after Jesus died on the cross. And, and this whole where we live is, is completely unseen by any prophet. And yet here in Psalm 45 we have little uh, glimpses, little, little tantalizing statements like the queen and um, at your right hand stands the queen and gold from Ophir. And we see the queen and with our New Testament hindsight we can look back here and think, hmm, this is... Uh, 
This is interesting. So, um, without reading all of Psalm 45 here, the, um, let's see, oh, why not? (laughs) My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one in your splendor and your majesty. When Jesus comes back at second advent, it's, it's not going to be a babe in the manger again. Okay, He did that once. First advent was humility. First advent was, uh, was coming to, to, to die on the cross. And second advent, he's coming to conquer. And second advent, he's got a sword and he knows how to use it. This is, uh, this is what we're going to see. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, there's no question who wins at Armageddon. There's no question what happens at the second advent of Jesus Christ. And Antichrist hates it. The dragon hates it. They do everything they can to, to stop Jesus from returning at a second advent, and, which is clearly nothing. <laughs> what, what can you do to stop the plan of God? Uh, it doesn't stop. All right. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your throne, O God. This messianic throne, this Davidic throne, is God's throne. There are many indications in the Old Testament that when, when Messiah comes, it would be God who comes. God in the flesh. It's Messiah who comes. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And it's grounded in righteousness. You can't miss that. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So how can you be talking to God and talking to God about his God? Okay, we understand. We get it. This is, uh, but this is what the Pharisees had struggled with and what they, they didn't like the fact that Jesus was calling himself the Son of God or uh, making himself equal to be with God. Now, thankfully the scriptures were on his side and he left them speechless uh, more often than not. The oil of joy above your fellows. Again, they wouldn't have a clue who his fellows are. The body of Christ was a mystery in the Old Testament. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh, with aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. We sing this hymn, um, but I mean, it's a fun hymn. I like it, but we haven't seen the fulfillment of that until Second Advent. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. See, Abraham was not going to give Isaac just any old Canaanite girl to be his bride. That's why he sent his servant back, and, and we have Genesis 26 in our Bibles. God the Father is not going to give Jesus Christ just any old bride. The outworking of the church is the Father's wisdom to provide, like with Eve to Adam, a, a helpmate corresponding or suitable to him. And what kind of bride, what kind of bride is suitable to the victorious Savior? <laughs> I mean, wow. What our, uh, what our Savior accomplished and what he's worthy of and what he's attained to. And, and recognize that's what he's doing with us. He's equipping us. He's maturing us. He's designed us to be the queen at his right hand in gold from Ophir. And that's, uh, that's an amazing thing to consider.
All right, well, it goes down. You can read the rest of this if you like, verses 10 through 17. Let's go over to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. It's a short psalm. It's only five verses. You think people will pay more attention to it than they do? Okay, it's eight verses. A psalm of David. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. So here's David. In his reign, he wanted to have a reign of righteousness. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. This is a sanctified hate. And I think Satan confuses things when he says, love good, hate bad. You can love and hate at the same time, and you should love and hate at the same time. God loves and hates at the same time. David loves and hates at the same time. If you don't hate what God hates, that's a problem. You need an attitude adjustment. So I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Those that that depart from truth, they want to take you with them. We want no part of that. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Now this was a matter of David's policy. It also becomes a matter of Jesus' national policy. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. And at a certain point here, and I think it, I think it happens right there between verse 5 and verse 6, at a certain point here we, we have a, a shift from, from the Davidic history to the messianic prophecy, to the messianic anticipation. And I think the, the language, there's a, there's a shift in the language starting in verse 6 with an anticipation of the future, the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. Remember God's going to bring Israel through a tribulation and having the nations fallen away, but then the nation's going to get restored. And who is Jesus going to put in his administration? Well, he's going to follow the same pattern that David did and more. So um, he who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. They're going to get fired in the Jesus Christ administration for the thousand years of his reign. And then, to me, the most powerful verse is verse 8. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. As a matter of national policy, not only will Jesus Christ reign in righteousness, He won't tolerate the presence of unrighteousness in His administration. And if you happen to go to Jerusalem during the day, I recommend you don't stay overnight if you're an unbeliever. I recommend you get out of town. In fact, uh, be, be gone before the sun goes down because when the sun comes up, it says every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land. Now it's curious to me because the millennium starts with 100% saved. You know, At Armageddon all the unbelievers are killed. And so the millennium starts with 100% born again, regenerate, tribulational survivors. The thing about those tribulational survivors, though, don't, for, don't ever forget, 
they're still sinners. They're saved, but they're still sinners with sin natures. And they start to have babies that, they're not born saved, they start to have babies that are unbelievers. Many of which don't accept the gospel. Even with perfect government, perfect environment, and Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. So by the time we get to the end of the thousand years, what do we have? We have the Gog-Magog rebellion. The number is like the sand of the seashore. It is a huge global movement hostile to Jesus Christ demanding His abdication. (laughs) And so through the process of those thousand years, then we have uh, kings coming on an annual basis to worship on the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And some kings will refuse to go. So they get their... uh, they get their rain turned off for the following year. <laughs> okay? Like when your landlord or when the city turns off your water because you didn't pay your water bill. Jesus turns off the rain because their king did not come to Jerusalem and worship him on the Feast of Tabernacles. You can read that in Zechariah 14 if you want more on that. And then every morning he personally executes wickedness from the land. So by the time we get to the end of the thousand years, when all of the nations are gathered together as the sand of the seashore, they're gathered around Jerusalem. The one place that stays faithful is Jerusalem. The one place that stays faithful is like the first time maybe ever in Jewish history (laughs) that the Gentiles are in rebellion and the Jews have stayed faithful because God has written His law into their heart and they don't rebel. They don't rebel like the Gentiles do. Finally then, Isaiah 11, we'll wrap up with... uh, Christmas chapter. How about that? Isaiah chapter 11. Got these great messages in Isaiah 7 about the virgin birth, Isaiah 11 about the king. The uh, <laughs> Talking to somebody last week, he had no clue that the prophet Isaiah had prophesied the birth of Messiah to a virgin 700 years ahead of time. I said, yeah, a Davidic virgin. And uh, Micah said it was going to be in Bethlehem. And there's all kinds of information before it happened that, uh, you know, anyway. And, and I'm hoping those, those will open doors for evangelism because this was a Jewish person that should know Isaiah better than he does. <laughs> and he's asking me questions about Jesus. And so, uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Isaiah 11, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his, from his roots will bear fruit. Jesus is both the shoot and the branch. First advent, he's a shoot. He's tender, he's, young, he's humble. Uh, second advent, he's a branch. Um, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge of fear of the Lord. Some people count seven in here and find this as the seven spirits of God from Revelation that stand before his throne. It says in verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also the righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Then you get to the wolf and the lion and the lamb and all this stuff. All right, millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. We have that to look forward to. Okay, one more subpoint to this, which is verses 14 and 15, and we'll deal with this next week. We are final week before the holiday break. Anger. 
Citizens should fear their king's anger and foster their king's favor. That's verse 14 and verse 15. The fury of a king in verse 14 and the light of a king's face in verse 15. So when you're face to face with your king, do you want to see fury or do you want to see light? (laughs) All right. And there's uh, quite a bit of scripture that addresses this too, by the way. And we'll see, uh, we'll see what, what we deal with that here one week from today. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that we would have wisdom to glean these principles so we can make application in our own day and age at the local, state, and national level, Father. I thank you for the perspective that comes about through your word, that we do have a local, state, and national level, Father, that we're not in defiance of your will as, uh, as Satan would have it, Father, in blending and blurring the, uh, the principles of nationalism into a, a global abomination, Father. We, we learn these things, we, we see how they're applied, and we want to make our personal applications ourselves, uh, for ourselves and for our families. We just thank you for being faithful. And I want to thank you also especially, Father. I think the history of the United States is unique in, in, in human history, whereby we are uh, governed uh, of the people, by the people. And uh, Father, this is uh, in the outworking of your plan, something that, uh, that uh, stands out, and I thank you for it. I pray we might always be mindful of your truth, we might always be positive to the Jewish people, and might always uh, keep our land oriented for the purposes of blessing. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.